um, when I was 13, Jeffrey gave me a guitar that he'd bought from the neighbor's gardener for five rand. And I just loved it. I loved it so much I used to cuddle it and go to sleep with it at night. Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 31 of My Way. My guest this week is someone who at least three Greytonians recommended I interview. Her name is Jane. She's an artist with many angles. She's a musician, a writer, a sculptor, a painter. And in the words of her friend Michelle, Jane knows an awful lot about an awful lot. If you don't know Jane, you'll see her every week at the Saturday market, strumming away on the guitar, often wearing a funny hat. Just my kind of girl. And she's an excellent storyteller, and I loved sitting with her in the winter sun and just listening. And I hope you do, too. Oi, okay. My name is Jane Anne Radcliffe Gaysford. And I'm <clears throat> descended from Charles II, but all from the wrong side of the blanket. So we won't say much more about that. <laughs> I was born in Ferenchen in the Transvaal, um, in 1954. What is your first and most vivid memory? Being born. Really? Yes. You remember being born? Yes. Oh, I think I read this about you in the Great Mail. So, yeah. I, I, okay, so talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Talk about being born. Just <laughs> talk about being born. Okay. Um, well, I can remember being still inside my mum. And then nothing happened, and she went to sleep, so I did as well. And then I woke up at some point, and was I was born. I came out, and my mum was still asleep, so they pulled me out with um, what do you call those things? Forceps. Forceps, yeah. Yeah. And the first thing I did when I came out um, was I was looking at the floor. I took a breath, and taking your first breath feels like that time when you fell down as a child and all the breath was knocked out of you and you had to get your breath going again. It's exactly the same when you're born. And then the, the doctor picked me up and smacked me, and I was furious. <laughs> and so the first person I actually saw was the sister, who, I'll never forget her face. She had sort of hazel eyes, fairly round faces and freckles and sort of light, light brown curly hair and she greeted me with a great big smile and took me off in her arms and I thought, hello mum. <laughs> <laughs> so I was quite upset later on when they, she took me to my real mother and handed me over and walked out of my life. I thought, what? <laughs> but all is well, I liked my mum a lot. <laughs> So by the same token, I can remember meeting my father shortly afterwards, yeah. Okay, so then maybe we should talk a little, I was going to say talk about your childhood, but maybe we should talk about your, your early, early, early childhood. 
like what are the memories that you have that um, 99% of the world doesn't have in terms of being that young? I can remember being in my cot and not having much to think about, so I, I thought about what I could remember. And that was the whole birth thing and meeting everybody. And, um, um, you you're not, not much happens when you're like a few days old. <laughs> I know, you don't think like, oh, I, really, I really shouldn't have taken that job. Oh, I need to get out of this job. No, that only happens much later. <laughs> so, talk about your family. My family, I have a wonderful family. Mm. My mom and dad, um, both extremely gentle, very spiritual, very caring people. My dad was an architect. My mom was a school teacher, but opted to stay home and look after her children. And I have two older brothers, Roger, who's eight years older than I am, and Jeffrey, who's six years older. The whole family taught me an enormous lot about living and what's good and what's not. Jeffrey taught me about important things like where the stars go during the day and the fact that the earth revolves around the sun, not the other way, and that the light that we have on earth comes from the sun, not from my eyeballs. <laughs> These are valuable lessons at an early age. The sooner the better. <laughs> exactly. The <laughs> sooner you realize that things don't revolve around you, the better. <laughs> Some people die still thinking that everything revolves around them. Oh, well. They're so lucky. Right, exactly. What were you like as a child? Oh, yeah. I just loved animals. Animals loved me. I loved plants. My mum used to take me around the garden and say to her, what's that called? And she'd give me the botanical name. <laughs> and yeah, I'm very shy still, always. Um, to, when I learned to climb trees, that was it, nobody could get to me. <laughs> I love swimming. Took to music at an early age. Never been a fantastic academic. Schooling I hated from the word go, even nursery school. All those children. Um, so I, I, I sat through school, um, went to Irene Primary School, and then to a good school in Pretoria where I was a boarder, good girls' school. And my education was, was happened through music really. Um, I started piano lessons and I had a wonderful teacher who taught me that anything is achievable if you take it in tiny steps and she taught me the patience to do things that way and I applied that to everything except exams which I did in one great big gulp every year. 
When I was nine years old, I found at a fate a book called The Once and Future King, T.H. White. And Merlin was teaching the young Arthur. And one of the things he said was, you cannot be a proper ruler. I'm not quoting correctly, but unless you know all of your subjects and promptly turned him into a fish or a frog or something like that. So through that, Arthur learned how to rule his all his subjects. So I started crawling around on my belly watching ants and bugs and promising myself I wouldn't squash anything until I really knew that it needed to be squashed. <laughs> <laughs> and that has stuck with me my whole life. Okay, there's intense interest in how things work. I found myself in my teenage years becoming of more of a scientific bent than an artistic bent because I was curious and I'm glad I, I learned how plants work, how they survive and what their mechanisms for survival and animals and how they differ and about the earth and atoms and all of that stuff. I did go to university and I did go to art school so I went to three tertiary institutions for one year each and I've come out of it knowing that I'm not, not an academic. And <clears throat> at the end of my boarding school time, which I hated utterly, the day I stepped out of the school, I sort of dusted my hands and s promised myself that I would never let anybody do that to me ever again. And so that probably accounts for quite a lot of not being able to stick with university. Mm. And so it was me in the world, and I just decided I was perfectly capable of making my way. Mm -hmm. um, when I was 13, Jeffrey gave me a guitar that he'd bought from the neighbor's gardener for five rand. And I just loved it. I loved it so much I used to cuddle it and go to sleep with it at night. And became, it was this obsession. Yeah. I'd been doing piano lessons up till then. And I became a piano player because at the age of eight, my mother sent me off to ballet lessons. And by the end of that first month, my, music, my ballet teacher and I were both begging my mom to let me stop. So she, she agreed and said that I then had to learn to play the piano, which I did quite happily. So I taught myself to play the guitar because I had enough musical background to do that and I absolutely still love it. The hard part was um, the pain at the ends of my fingers, um, but I quickly grew calluses and yeah, never looked back. That was 51 years ago. And I've sort of worked out that I've probably practiced about 37,720 hours more or less in that time, yeah. <laughs> Talk about the different hats you've worn in your life. Well, 
the first the first hat was the musician hat and in conjunction with Michelle Holloway because we had learned to play together we were very comfortable um, I learned that I could sustain myself by doing gigs and that there was an income to be had we um, met in standard six okay. and we learned to play guitar together mm-hmm. and then for about I don't know about a year maybe after that when, uh, when we finished school she was at varsity and I was at art school and we used to play in all the restaurants and pubs in Pretoria and I mean we were both underage but we used to people used to buy us drink <laughs> I'm imagining two young girls with like pigtails be like, thank you for my whiskey, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't far off the mark, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Both innocent um, young things. So a few years after she we, we parted ways um, and I dropped out of university for the second time, I set up a, a, a music school in Peter Marisburg. Um, just me teaching people to play the guitar and did that for about four years I think and that was a, an intense time for me because I was practicing guitar or playing guitar for an average of about eight hours a day four hours of teaching and four hours of playing in the evening and probably about another two or three in the morning practicing and it was the best investment in myself because that took my guitar playing to a different level and um, that has launched me into what I can do today which I'm very happy with. Mm. I did that for about 12 years altogether, you know, just playing music, working in music shops it was a time when I cut my hair very short and coloured it bright blue, like those curtains, in Pretoria. I was working in this very um, conservatively owned music store. Um, they used to supply the army and the police with musical instruments. And the oldest member of this, the staff, um, just loved me. He was 80-something. And the biggest kick for him was to walk down the street with me after work to the car park. And he just watched people's faces. (laughs) He just loved it. Anyway. (laughs) And at that time, I must tell you, I was living in a treehouse in my mother's garden. Um, Because I had to to go back home for a while. And having been away from home for such a long time, we didn't get on. So I built a treehouse in her garden. And she was amazing because she just behaved as though it was perfectly normal to have a 26-year-old daughter living in a tree in her garden. Didn't twitch. (laughs) Fantastic woman, my mom. (laughs) Did you build the treehouse yourself? Yes, yeah, 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 I did that. So it was great. It was very small. I mean, it was one one room. Yeah. And how long did you live in the treehouse? Probably about four months. Wow. Yeah. It was great. While I was doing all of that, I met my future husband and I moved down to Natal. 
and we got married there and I carried on playing and teaching. And then one day I just found myself without pupils no, and no work. And I was sitting on the edge of my bed thinking, okay, what now? And there was a knock at the door. And my friend who lived down the road on a, an adjacent farm, we were living on a farm, said, come and play with clay. I've just bought a wheel and I have clay. So I trotted off down and discovered that I just loved this stuff. I borrowed a kilogram of clay from her and I made a whole lot of tiny little figures which she took off to her pottery teacher and had them fired and they came back and I wow. So I sent them to my mum as a present and she promptly took them off to a gallery in Pretoria and sold them. So um, I threw myself into the clay wholeheartedly and uh, had a, an exhibition about a year later, which was very successful. And I started to make dragons. And Why dragons? Well, I was trying to work out something that would be unique, and I hadn't seen anybody making dragons. And I thought, well, we've got the Drakensberg, and maybe this is appropriate for Natal. And partly because somewhere in the once and future king, there's a dragon or a dragon-like creature. Mm. So that kind of sprung things. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, I, I was... I did all that through the kindness of, of the pottery teacher, same one, um, in Pennington. Sort of had a few exhibitions. And then I found myself living alone and divorced in Renishaw, which is close to Scottborough, still on the Natal south coast. And by then I had a kiln of my own and was working really hard and somebody had given me a, a battery operated radio and lo and behold who should I hear one night but Chris Pryor and it was exactly the right music for making dragons by and so I had his music on every evening and my working hours shifted from daytime to nighttime. and one night he played something that really really got to me and I phoned just to thank him. And this was about probably half past 11 at night. And he said to me, what are you doing? Why are you up <laughs> at this time? So I told him, he said to me, okay, what do you make? I said, dragons. He said, uh-huh, okay. Anyway, about, I can't remember how long it was after that. I had my first solo exhibition in Johannesburg and I let him know and he and Nadine arrived. They just loved the dragons and Chris then commissioned a dragon. I worked from 10 at night till 2 in the morning listening to all this lovely rock and roll and yeah it was great and it was a spiritual odyssey for me at that time. I was reading a lot of Lyle Watson and spiritual books and you know, that whole thing, learning, finding out where I was, exploring everything, um, and just having, listening to this music, working on the dragons, 
reading, thinking, having the most beautiful insights into the construction of the universe and mm. the place of every single thing in it. And so Chris, in his own kind of spiritual way, transfers that spirituality through the music into the rest of humanity and everywhere. And I keep thinking, when he's broadcasting, what doesn't get received by radios probably goes off into outer space, and who knows who's out there listening to all of this as well. Mm. <laughs> you know? So anyway. All right, so after that. Right, after that. All right. When I left Rennie Shaw, I ended up in the Eastern Transvaal with my then-partner, and again, with nothing to do, battling to try and, obviously, I, I sold my kiln, I couldn't take it with me. So I had no way of supporting myself. And there was no prospect for music in, in Nelspreit. So I started painting and discovered that I could pay the, pay the rent with paintings and that people really wanted the paintings I was doing. And so I started painting. And um, oh, when we moved from the Eastern Transvaal, we went to the west coast, right in the middle of the desert, 50 kilometers from anywhere, in any direction. <laughs> and um, then I, I had another kiln by then, and I started digging up the clay that was available. Under this layer of sand, there's clay, so I was digging up this clay, which interestingly enough was still salty from when the oceans withdrew not so very long ago and still seashells and stuff in it, you know, it was interesting. And it was one day while I was cleaning this clay and was looking at the bits of shell that was in my hand, I had another psychic kick in which I found myself being an 18-year-old boy sitting in a lush forest at that exact spot where I was at that moment. And I'd hurt my feet. And and this forest was there and the water was just over there. And I was found by some people who were not my own, but they took me. And they helped me through. They um, healed me and I could walk again. Not very well, but I stayed with them. Um, so... <clears throat> I kept feeling that there was some kind of destiny for me there and then I remembered the vision that I'd seen before I was born mm. and it was of brown people migrating at a, at a time when it became impossible for them to actually live in that area and they went northwards up the west coast and I imagined to Angola where it was a little greener or into Namibia to a greener place. So that was a very long time ago, that. So I had to think about that for a while. But I hated being there and asked, God, please just move me away somewhere else. And at that time, yeah, I was, I was making, doing poetry and I was also selling my paintings. And then we found ourselves living in Hrabeau and my partner had a, a job managing a farm. 
And at that point, um, this is all Michelle's fault. She was living here and she invited me over to play at a little, um, not a little, but a, a variety concert they had at Cafe Herbert, which is what Abbey Rose used to be called. And I fell in love with Grayton. It was so very, very much like the place, place I'd grown up in, yeah. in Irene. Very similar. And I ended up house-sitting for some people initially. I was walking down the road one day and I thought, oh, I'd love to live here. I said, um, but I'd need some ways of surviving. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe I could have a nursery, start a little nursery. And that's exactly what happened. When the current nursery closed down, space opened up for me to open up a nursery. And so I did. And the, the nursery survived for five years, and then I had to give it up because my heart gave in. My energy got less and less and less, so I now have a pacemaker. So I'm like a Duracell bunny, you know? The battery runs down, <laughs> and then they have to give me another one. <laughs> Who are people that inspire you, or have inspired you in the past? Mm -hmm. Sculpturally, I would say Henry Moore, although our styles are completely different, but I love his grandiose statements. Um, my father definitely influenced me with painting because he was a landscape painter. And the big treat was always in Pretoria when he and I were there together, when he picked me up from school. We'd, we'd go and have lunch and then we'd go to the South African Art Museum and He'd say, well, that's fantastic. And I, yes, Dad, yes, Dad, yes, Dad. Mm -hmm. um, so I find myself painting landscapes now. It was, a, an obs well, it was a potter that I never, ever met, but I used to find her pots, like in art museums and exhibitions and things every now and again. Mm. She made exquisitely tiny pots that were, like there'd be a little pot with little strings, six little strings going across it like a musical instrument, you know, with little holes and little knots. And she inspired me for poetry. Although C.S. Bosch, when I was nine years old, I was there with my mum at his studio, and I had to sit outside while she went and had tea, and he had all his pots drying in the sun. I can still remember the feeling. It came from my insides, from the solar plexus. I just wanted to do that. And I still, when I see my pots all drying in the sun, I have enormous satisfaction. Musically, Steve Newman, Tony Cox, that, that duo, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Chopin, Mozart, Patty Larkin is one of the best songwriters. And just, just on the guitar, I mean, my, my, I took classical guitar lessons for one year, and my classical guitar teacher was fabulous. Mm. He just saw that I knew what I was doing, and I remember going for my lesson one evening, and it was full moon, and he didn't put the lights on, and he sat and played for me. It was wonderful. So he was a big, big influence as well. And he eventually married somebody, and they set off... To, to travel the world in their own yacht 
And they raised two children on this yacht, and he's still making guitars and writing music and playing, which is great, you know. Although I'm very, I'm not a traveler. I don't like traveling. Have you been outside of South Africa? Yeah, okay. I went to England with my mum, and then I spent two and a half months in the Pacific Northwest with my cousins. Oh, where? Uh, in Spokane initially, but they also have a place out in the right up close to the Canadian border okay. in the, in the Idaho Panhandle right up in the mountains on a glacier lake. So I went there with him, and then he gave me some money and lent me a car, and I set off to do my own travels. And I didn't go very far. I just headed towards the coast and spent a month walking in the mountains and just having the most incredible experiences with animals. And that was... And what kinds of animals did you see? Well, started off, I was alone at at the cabin in Idaho, and they were in Spokane. And I was washing the windows one Sunday morning. And my cousin had said to me, you're perfectly safe. There are no bears here. We've never seen a bear. <laughs> and washing the window, and this animal ran across the lawn. I caught sight of it just briefly, and I thought, it looked like a bouvier. It looked like an old English sheepdog with the wrong colour. That was a bear. So, and my breakfast was cooking on the stove, and I, I shot inside and got to the back door just as it came up the steps. And because the door didn't latch properly, I had to lean against the door to keep it closed. And there was a screen door and the kitchen door with this little glass window in it. So I'm leaning up. And I look up, and there's Bear leaning up against the door like this and looking through the, the glass back at me. So we were this far apart. It's about 12 inches. And I could see the ticks in its ears. I could see its teeth. It had these enormous teeth. And I could see its eyelashes and the, its nose, which looks just like a dog's nose, with so the same sort of texture on it. And I could smell it. And the claws on its feet were a good two or three inches long. And this fur, the textures and everything. And it was looking back at me with as much interest. <laughs> and now it's doing an interview somewhere saying, I remember her face. Yeah. <laughs> she smelled funny. Yes. She was cooking something very delicious on the stove that I couldn't get to in time. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I was shaking like a leaf. She had no nails at all. <laughs> yeah. No claws. Zero. Her teeth were funny and small. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the first one. And then I was went up. I climbed a mountain one day. It's an amazing place, Lake Diablo. And um, I was halfway up. And I was really tired, and I thought, I must sit down. So I sat down, and there was a rustle, rustle in the leaves next to me. And I looked down, and there was a grouse scratching away in the leaves. So I said to it, hello. And it looked at me, and it came and sat down next to me. Okay. There were the two of us sitting there. And I said to it, well, what are you up to? 
and it promptly scratched around in the leaves with its beak. I said, okay, well, good luck. I said, well, I've got to go now, and it got up, and it walked off in one direction, and I went in the other. Okay? Right. <laughs> anyway, so that went on, and then um, I got to a little lake in the middle of the forest. Um, it was like in an Indian reserve, and there was a walk you could do from there. It was about four miles from there to the beach, and it was a whole, like a 12-mile walk. Anyway, so I got to the beach, and uh, the tide was out, but I started walking across the rocks, and there was this little hummingbird that kept going up like 40 feet and then dive-bombing me. So I thought, okay, it's not happy with me doing what I'm doing. So I turned around went back to the sand and started trekking for the rest of the walk. And I was following a set, two sets of footprints. One was a human set and the other was a deer, all going in the same direction. And I was quite tired, so I wasn't looking up. I was just watching these footprints and I realized that the deer's footprints were no longer there. So I stopped, looked back, and there was this stag clutched on the beach with his antlers and I'd walked right past him. So I turned around and I went back and I said to him, I spoke to all of these animals, I said, hello. And he just looked at me. Okay, now we're about three feet apart. So I said, do you mind if I take a photograph? And he just looked at me, so I took a photo. And I said, well, thank you very much. Have a good day. And off I went. This stag just sat there. You know. <laughs> So lay there, just watched me. So I walked off around a rock stack and standing there, and I hear a funny noise, I looked down, there's a pair of otters, sea otters, at my feet, rolling around and just having fun. And I looked up and there were beluga whales in the, in the strait, oh, beginning to think that the whole of America had to be like that. No, no animals running away from anybody. Anyway, so I set off home, got back to camp, really tired. I had a tin of mushroom soup, which I wasn't going to make a fire. I was just going to eat it cold with a spoon, and I had some blueberry muffins in my car. So I opened the tin, put it on the picnic table, got into the car, grabbed the muffins. Next thing there's a, what are those bandits? What are they called? A raccoon. A raccoon on my lap. So I said, hello. <laughs> I gave it a muffin which just sat there on my lap and devoured it, and then it knew I had another one, you see. So um, I was about to say no, and it reached out and took this muffin and ate it. So I said, well, that's it. I showed it. I had no more muffins. Oh, it's it. Hopped out, grabbed my tin of soup, and ran up a tree. OK, that's fine. I went to bed. <laughs> I listened to it slurping this tin of soup. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, that was one very interesting day. And, oh yes, that's right, on the way home, through the forest, this narrow path, and it's very overgrown, I couldn't, you couldn't step off. And I went a little bit further, and I heard galloping. So I stopped, and a doe with her, her child, her fawn, came galloping around the corner, just about, I don't know, ten yards away, and they screeched to a halt and looked at me. So I thought, well, what do I do now? 
thought, okay, I go invisible. So I turned my back on them and I sat down. Next thing, I didn't hear, didn't hear anything. I felt this breath on the back of my neck. What? And mommy had come up and she was busy smelling me. No. Yeah. And her baby was with her. And I turned, I looked at her. And she just quietly, with her baby, went off into the forest. It's just incredible. What do you feel like are your best qualities? And then what do you feel like are your sort of most challenging qualities? Crumbs. Um. <laughs> I don't know about my best qualities. Mm. I I think, okay, my best qualities are this. So I, <clears throat> I have a very good attention span. I can concentrate... I can concentrate very well, which is what has got to me. People think I'm talented. I'm not naturally terribly bright at anything. But I think through concentrating, I can learn what the principles of a thing are. And I become, the more I practice a thing, the more talented I become. And so I've taken time out to work hard. I work very hard. And I've had a hard life. Okay, it hasn't just been roses the whole way. But I'm busy all the time learning and experimenting. And having learnt the lesson of doing great things with small steps. Mm-hmm. My worst quality, I think, is, is that um, I tend to be a loner. I'm reclusive. I do miss people, but I I know how to get around that. I know how to keep myself busy. Um, yeah, that's uh, I think that's my my greatest drawback. Mm. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Do you think that this village enables people to become more reclusive? It's the kind of place that if you want to be on your own, people will let you be. But the moment you step out of that space and want to be, you want to socialize, they accept you, they welcome you with open arms. Yeah. And, and you don't have to engage with everybody. You can be friendly and everybody knows who you are mm-hmm. by sight. I know who everybody is by sight. I don't know everybody. I know, I know well. Very few people. Right. Some very close friends. Mm-hmm. But I, I never feel, when I come into Grayton, my, my social time is playing guitar at the market. And then it's enough for me, anyway, to be able to smile and nod to people in passing. I don't have to have a conversation with them. Yeah. And people are very supportive. It is quite astonishing. Okay, and so with the personality question, p- p- things about your personality, what do you feel like are the best parts and the mo- most uh, challenging parts of living in this town? The best parts are the fact that everybody knows who I am. 
And I don't mind if they talk about me because I know that if I'm ever in need, help is around the corner. Mm. Yeah. And the most challenging part, I think, is the distance from like cultural stuff. Mm. I miss that. I miss. I used to really enjoy going to symphonies and things like that and shows. And you don't really do that when you live here. Yeah. Um, it's. I don't make a fabulous living, so I don't have money to travel. You know, there's certain. Uh, facilities that are not here, like it's quite hard to find a mechanic to fix your car, you know, stuff like that. You know, big, like producing stuff and having to market it and trying to find markets out of town and then getting stuff there, Yeah. that's that's always a bit of a thing. Yeah, um, it seems like the, the, the good parts of this village are also the bad parts. <laughs> Yeah. In many cases. Yeah, they, they each is each has a mirror side, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 And what kinds of things bring you the most pleasure now? Just make you really joyful. I love growing my vegetables. And I love waking up and having a look at the day. And yeah, I love going to the sea which I don't do very often, but when I go, I just love it. Mm. I love my music. I love listening to good music. I love having good music to listen to when I paint. I love the ease with which I can play my guitar. Mm. I'm extremely grateful that I'm very healthy and I don't have arthritis. I love my hands. Mm. I love my cats. I've got two. And I'm very happy with them. I love my neighbors. I love being on the farm. I still love reading. I love books. And I love it when I can learn something new or have a new outlook on something. I love discussion of that sort. And some of these wretched people in this town I love them just because they're so awful. <laughs> because they add so much colour. <laughs> oh, this is true, right? Yeah, it would be very dull and very, you know, yeah, if, if they were not there. Yeah. Um, there would be no contrast, there'd be no yeah. texture. It'd be too vanilla. Yes, it would just be too vanilla. You're so right. <laughs> so I have to start looking at it now. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you had the power to solve one problem in the world, mm. what would it be? The pollution. Pollution. Mm. Mm. Of every sort. Because mm. I grew up in paradise. Plastic was relatively new when I was young. It was a different world. And even my parents sort of said, oh, you know, things were different when they were young. And each generation accepts the world as it is Mm -hmm. when they are born. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it would be lovely to just restore some things. Yeah. I I think our environment copes extremely well 
with what's happening, but I hope it, I hope, I hope it survives. Yeah. That's the big thing. And do you have any, I mean, you've kind of said things here and there, but do you have any sort of philosophies or mantras or anything like that? Yeah, I'm a Sufi. I was born into a Sufi family. Mm. So I became a Sufi when I was about eight years old. I was accepted into the movement, into mm. the movement of South African Sufi movement. The wonderful thing about Sufism is that you're expected to find out what everybody else thinks. So I've explored wherever, wherever I can get in and explore, I've explored. And to discover that, yes, the teachings of Sufism are absolutely correct and that every walk of life teaches the same thing. All the scriptures teach the same things. Every avatar that's been has taught the same things. It's just couched in different phrases, different words, different time frames. And we're all the same. We all have different lessons to learn. And we all create our own lives and circumstances. I suppose that's God looking at itself and the, at the possibilities. So that's what I, that's who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you, uh, what do you want your legacy to be? I can't say that I have a legacy to leave or, mm. no. Because the fo the focus is is actually on on your your day to day living and and getting through each day. Um, sticking to certain a certain ethic. You know, and I would say that I try to be kind, because kindness goes a long way. And um, I'm not always kind. I don't. I'm. I'm sometimes really horrible, but yeah. I think we all are. Yeah. Sometimes you just get caught on the wrong foot. Mm. But I try to be kind. And people are extremely kind to me. I know that I am the luckiest person on earth. I really am. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jane Gaysford. All the music in this episode was composed and performed by Jane. The songs included in this episode are from her album called What I Do Now. As a side note, there are a handful of you in the village who expressed to me how much you enjoy the podcast, and I just wanted to say the feedback means so much to me, so thank you. Please take a moment to rate the podcast on iTunes. This is a huge help for the podcast, and it only takes a moment to scroll down and click the number of stars you think it deserves. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates. See you next time.